Friends, let's open our Bibles now to Psalm 129. Psalm 129, and this is the Word of God, a song of ascents. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, and they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, and he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor Do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. You know, we rightly say that believers in Christ should not be defensive. You know, I I know certain believers in Christ, they kind of walk around like this. They're always worried about what's going to happen. They, you know, the the world's always going to hell in a handbasket. There's always a theory about what is wrong and what are we going to do about it and all the hand-wringing and there's just kind of this defensiveness. This is not good and, and we rightly say we shouldn't just walk around defensive all the time. That's not great for somebody who knows the one true and living God to be like. But we would rather be really on the offense with the love of God. We, we would like to experience God's love in the cross, experience God's grace in the good news and to live into that and and allow the Lord to just make us bigger people, make us people who look to Him in faith and and to be able to share that love out there in the culture with people, kind of the on offense. I mean, really, uh, who would you rather have than Jesus Christ as your Savior? Who would you rather have than Jesus Christ as, as your rescuer who who left heaven for no other reason than love, to to come and save people who are not beautiful, but rather God's enemies. And who would you rather have but someone who's given it all for you and and offers all things to us through His sacrifice? And, And it's beautiful what we offer the world when we're living out loud the gospel, when we're on offense, when we're taking grace and truth to people in humble, loving ministry to people. But you know, that being said, there is an appropriate defense for believers as well. Um, It is true as much today as it ever has been that, that the world, that is the system of thinking that sets itself up against God's truth, The world, the flesh, that is our own tendency towards self and selfishness, and the devil, that is that spiritual being who hates God, hates the gospel, hates the church. Uh, For the, the world and the flesh and the devil are coming against the kingdom of God and putting pressure on the kingdom of God and putting pressure against believers in Christ. And and it is true that in this psalm we find a defense. That this psalm is a kind of prayer, really. That God would defend His people. Some people call it 
warfare prayer. And you know, that's a good terminology. Even in Psalm 129, we, we see that actual uh, armies come against Israel. And, and we see in the spiritual realm what people call spiritual warfare, which is absolutely true. And so warfare prayer is not a bad way to put it, but why don't we call it in light of Psalm 129, a prayer of defense for the people of God and for the kingdom of God. Basically, what we're praying through Psalm 129 is that the opposition, that opposition to the gospel will not succeed. Let me say that again. That opposition to God, His glory, and the gospel, His grace, will not succeed. You see, in prayer, if if we would pray faithfully, we literally have to pray against things as well as pray for things. You know, as we praise the Lord for who He is, thank Him for what He's done, and we begin to pray for things. It's called petition. And yet, to be faithful, unless we feel like we don't need God to defend us, we don't need God to lift us up, to help us, to deliver us, we pray against things as well. I know that in... 2013, there's, there's a little bit of a political correctness that, that just kind of feels stark of people praying against other people and their influence. But, but folks, this is Scripture. This is one of 36 psalms called the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms means a prayer against those who are against grace. The kingdom of God. That's what it means. In fact, if you were to get really technical, let me just kind of really get under the skin of some folks maybe. It's it's technically a curse. Remember Abraham? God said to Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever curses you, I will curse. A curse is basically calling on God or in some other people call on their God, so to speak, um, for something negative to happen or the stopping from something to happen through the life of of another person. Now, lest you think, well, that's the Old Testament God. And the Old Testament God, He's kind of serious and angry. That's that New Testament. Jesus, love. I like that New Testament. Well, you ought to write this down. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8. You'll feel like you're reading Psalm 129. You can read that that little imprecatory um, place in the New Testament before you go to bed at night for encouragement uh, tonight. But let me ask you a question just practically. You know, we, we see this, but that's how you pray. That's how you think, isn't it? Do, do you ever pray defensively? Do you ever pray that God would protect you? From what? <laughs> well, you fill in a lot of blanks of what God would protect you. Do you ever, you ever pray that, that God would deliver you? Absolutely you do. Do, do you ever pray against the schemes of Satan? and the temptations that you or other people face in your life. And, you know, maybe you wouldn't put it just that way, but, but, but you realize that's what you're praying, is that people would not be tricked, would not just hand over their birthright functionally in Christ for some populous mess of porridge or stew through a trick. Yeah, you, you pray that way. Do you, do you ever pray against the the power of the spirit of the age. Well, you might not put it that way, but, but you're praying about the things that you're seeing and, and how people are deceived. And you say, Lord, we, we need for you to be at work. And do you ever pray against those who persecute God's church? 
throughout the world. Yeah, you do. You know probably that right now people are dying all over the world and their only crime is holding out the gospel, the grace and love of the one who came and did it for us. We're not trying to take over real estate. We're not trying for world domination. We just want to hold out the gospel. And people are dying. And we are praying, Lord, protect your church. Those are warfare prayers. Lord, stop this from happening. Frustrate the plans of those who oppose the gospel. Now, we know that this is an appropriate type of prayer in Psalm 129. And you know why we know it? We know it because this, is, this prayer made it into the hymn book of Israel. That's what the Psalms is. You understand? The, it, the word Psalms means the praises. This is the hymn book of Israel. And not only did this imprecatory psalm make it into the hymn book of Israel, therefore it's okay, this is one of the psalms of ascent. This is one of those psalms that, that the Jewish people, as they were in their caravans and, and they were going up, and you know Jerusalem's literally up, and they were going up to Jerusalem to the temple and they would sing these songs together. This is a part of how you prepare your heart for worship. Meaning that a part of preparing your heart for worship is to say to God, God, you are great and I can't, I can't do it without you. I've got to have you to protect me. I've got to have you to deliver me, to defend me. This is a big part of worship. Now, if we were to put Psalm 129 in a sentence, I'd put it like this. There's two parts in this psalm. Praise Him for His grace and ask for their disgrace. I know that sounds really stark, but let me say it again. Praise Him, praise God for His grace, ask for their disgrace. The first is the notion of praising God for His grace and His greatness and all that He has done for us. Verse 1, greatly they have afflicted me. Basically, we've been through so much, Lord. We've been through so much, Lord, and You have delivered us every time. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Me is Israel. So I'll say us. How about that? Greatly they have afflicted us from our youth. Let Israel say, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. All right? So praise the Lord that, that in all of this opposition, in all of this danger, in all this threat, He has come through every time. Derek Kidner, in his treatment of this passage, says, and this is, this is right on target, Whereas most nations tend to look back on what they've achieved, Israel looks back in how she survived. I want you to think about this for a minute. There is no ethnicity, there's no nation like Israel. Nobody has undergone more attacks by people, all of which were militarily um, greater, all of which had greater landmass and more people than Israel. No one has on, undergone more attacks, and yet, in, in every time, God has seen to it that Israel has survived on the ash heap of history is empire after empire that attacked Israel who no longer exists. It's really fascinating. There was a German nobleman in the early 1800s uh, his friend had gotten into the philosophy of Voltaire, 
Uh, for those of you who don't know who Voltaire, Voltaire was one of the early kind of angry atheists um, who, who really wanted to, to try to pull together in, in more of a modern way of talking about the fact that there is no God and it's, Voltaire kind of said it's foolish to believe there's a God. And Voltaire would, would just mock God and Christ and, and Christians. And so this nobleman, you know, he's a German nobleman. He has his own chaplain. He's got his own chapel, meaning the, a church that he built and all the people in the village, whatever, come to his church that he built. So he goes to his chaplain and he's disturbed with what his friend, who's, who's kind of gone over to Voltaire, is saying. And he says, look, I, I'm not a great theologian. He says this to his chaplain. I'm not a great theologian. I'm not that, really that deep in philosophy. I'm just really troubled about what my friend is telling me. Could, could you just give me in one sentence evidence so that, that I should give credence to the God of the Bible? I, I believe in the God of the Bible. Could you just give me evidence? One sentence. And the chaplain looked at him and he said, Look, I don't even need a sentence. I'll give you one word. Israel. And he understood that there's nobody like Israel. And you've got to know that. You've got to ask why they're still here. You've got to ask what's going on there. there there's something that, that says, pay attention to this group of people. God has kept Israel. We've been through so much, O oh Lord. That's what we read in verse 1. We've been through so much, O oh Lord. But they have never prevailed against us. It sounds like Psalm 124, that five weeks ago, we looked at. Psalm 124 and verse 1 says, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, they would have swallowed us alive. Why? Because those armies are always greater than Israel. They're always militarily superior in their hardware to Israel. They would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us, when the, when, then the flood would have swept us away for good and the torrent would have gone over us. Remember, this is worship. You know, verse 1, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel say, this is like, as I told you when I preached Psalm 124, it's kind of like the black preacher. Can I get a witness, you know? Let Israel say, and then the whole congregation follows the preacher in this liturgical chant, and they say out loud, greatly they have afflicted us from our youth, but they have not prevailed against us. Now, the youth of Israel is identified in Hosea 11.1 1, as that time when Israel became not just a tribe of, the, of the, the people of God under Abraham, you know, the chosen people, but they in, in uh, Egypt became a nation, didn't they? Became a great nation in Egypt. We read in Hosea 11.1, 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And boy, when the Lord brought by His great power, the, the Israel out of Egypt. It was something of a wonder, wasn't it? As He delivered them in, into this freedom. And now we read in Psalm 129, not just about Egypt and about the Exodus, but that God has 
from Israel's youth repeatedly done the same thing. We're not exactly sure when this psalm was written. Some people think that this was written after um, the Assyrian invasion, Assyrian, not Syrian, the Assyrian invasion on Jerusalem during the time of King Hezekiah, and God repelled the Assyrians. Some people think that this is after the Babylonian captivity and God has brought his people home. But from, I mean, we could be talking about Egypt. We could be talking about the Philistines. We could be talking about the Syrians. We could be talking about the Babylonians. We could be talking about the Edomites. We could be talking about the Moabites. We could be talking about, I mean, the list goes on of how they have been afflicted. Yet they have not prevailed against us. And the picture here is a really graphic picture. You see verse 3, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made me, they made long furrows. This idea that they're just plowing into your back. Well, I mean, maybe this is a, a picture of, of, the, of the whips. You know, and, and being under a, and being whipped so hard and so repeatedly, there's just like these bloody lines on your back and they're just, it's almost like there's a, uh, an ox and, and a plow and they just have no regard and they just keep plowing right on top of the, the Israelites and oppress and oppress and oppress. But look at verse 4. The Lord is righteous and He has cut the cords of the wicked. They're hooked up in, in their oppression, but, but the Lord is righteous. He cuts the cords. He, he sets Israel free. God delivers them Every time, praise Yahweh, the one who promised, you are mine, I will be yours. I will never leave you. I will always deliver you. Praise Yahweh. And, and, and look, it says that he's righteous. You know what righteousness is? Well, you know God's holy, right? God, holiness of God means the absolute moral purity, peerlessness, purity of God. Righteousness means that a holy God always does right. There's always justice with God. There's always a perfect application of holiness with God. I mean, it's, it, it, is an, it is an incredible thing. I mean, you, you, you want to talk about how serious God is with sin? The, the guilty will by no means go unpunished. God is so serious about sin. He is so holy and He is so righteous right down to the nth that He killed His own Son. That He poured out every bit of His wrath in His total righteousness and fulfilled every ounce of that punishment that needs to be punished if God is to be holy and to act holy and to be righteous. And God, we read in verse 4, the Lord is righteous. and He has come to our rescue. and He has cut the cords of the wicked. And I want to ask you personally, in your life, I want you to think about your life, has not God been with you? If you've put your trust in the one that he has sent, Jesus Christ, his only son, for our rescue, who has paid fully for the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, so that the judgment of God will not fall upon you for the express purpose of gathering you up into His arms to have union with Him and to love you throughout eternity and to walk with you and to fulfill His purposes in this world. 
If that's who you are, has God not been with you? Has God not provided for you in times of challenge? The answer is yes. Has God not protected you? You're sitting here. (laughs) You're here. The answer is yes. How long, how many times they have afflicted me, O Lord, let me get a witness how long, how many times they have afflicted me, O Lord, but they have never conquered me. You see, this is a psalm of worship. And rather than starting by praying protection over what might happen and what will happen without Yahweh, we start with praise for what God has done. He has shown Himself to be a faithful, covenant-keeping God. So the first is, praise Him for His grace. Think about your own life. Praise Him for His grace. Secondly is where the defensive prayers come. Ask for their disgrace. That just doesn't rest well on modern ears. There is still pressure. This is true today on God's kingdom and on God's people And the prayer is, interpose yourself, Lord, between me, between your church, between the movement of the gospel. Interpose yourself. Stop it. Put a stop to it. Let those schemes not come to fruition. This isn't saying throw somebody into hell or something like this. This is defense. Don't let it be successful. You're praying for God's church. And this is where, basically, it says, may they be disgraced or turned away, may they be unsuccessful, and may they be unblessed, which is no way to live. And the defensive prayers come in, and this is where we realize, you know, it is okay to pray against the influence of certain things and people in our lives. And let me tell you, if you're a parent, you better learn imprecatory praying. And you better pray for your children and, and for the influence, that, for God to, to rein that influence in. So, what follows prayer, praise is technically a curse. That's why the, the, um, the title is Permission to Curse. That didn't, I didn't say cuss, I said curse. And there's, th- there's basically three imprecatory prayers here, or curses, however you want to put it. And the first prayer of defense is verse 5. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and be turned back or backward. Now, Zion, what is Zion? Well, Zion is the mountain that Jerusalem is built on. But this isn't referring to geography. I mean, it kind of is. But what it's referring to is that Zion is the mountain that Jerusalem's built on and the temple is on Mount Zion, and the temple is where God's presence in this world overlapped. The temple is where His name dwelt and His glory dwelt. And so right there is where there's like an overlapping of God's presence in a a sense of powerful presence in this world. So Zion becomes a symbol for God right in the middle of His people. 
God in His temple, in the middle of His people, God with us, God whom we worship, God who will not forsake us. Let those who hate Zion, He says, let them be put to shame. Let them be turned away. Like, like an army that, that is unable to fulfill its objective and, and turned away and, and t- tail between their lo- legs, they go away. The second defensive prayer is in verses 6 and 7. And this is fascinating ancient um, picture, word pictures. Let them, let them be like grass on the house, housetops. Okay, what's that? Let them be like grass on the housetops which withers, verse 6 and 7, which withers before it grows up and the reaper doesn't even fill his hand, much less fill his arms with a sheath. Now, we need to understand a little architecture from, uh, from those days. You know, here in Madison and Ridgeland, Mississippi, we kind of have this propensity for these hip roofs, kind of French-looking tall roofs. There were none of those in Israel. Roofs, roofs, roofs were flat in Israel. And let me just tell you how they built roofs in Israel. So they build the house, the roof is flat. They put these beams across the roof and then they would put branches like fill in with you know interwoven of branches over the beams and then they would put mud or, or dirt a mixture and like kind of like adobe in a way they put mud on top of that to, to seal it in so you got the beams you got the branches you got the mud well you understand because look even if you got one of those pitched roofs i mean you know you got pine straw right now in the corners that hadn't the rain hadn't brought off right and so there's dirt that's loose on these roots. Now what happens in the dirt is after the rain, there's a loose little thing of dirt. You know, the grass seed that's kind of in the air. The grass starts growing on your roof, in the flat roof in Israel. And here's the meaning. Looks just like grass. Man, it just sprouts up so quick. Looks just like grass. Only problem is the soil it's only that thin, and the sun in Israel just bakes it. it never, it's just dead before it ever has a chance to grow. It is stopped right in its tracks. That's what the prayer is. Lord, may the folks that would come against your kingdom, who hate Zion, may they be like grass on, like grass on the roof. May they not even get started. That's not a bad prayer. Lord, stop it before it even gets started. Maybe like, um, here's another example, like you go into a parking lot of an abandoned building and the parking lot, you know, and especially in Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi, the parking lot's not even, right? Because of Yazoo clay. So in one of those dips, what do you have? All the rainwater. You got just a thin layer of dirt, don't you? You see those little plants coming up in the dirt? They're not going to be there long when the sun, sure enough, comes out in the summer in Mississippi. Then he says, hey, you know, they don't even get started. You don't, there's no, there's no fruit. You go up there and try to harvest something out of the grass on the roof. You won't even get a handful is what the scripture is saying here. You certainly won't get a bundle or, or, a, or a sheath, you see. And the last prayer of defense has to do with this matter of blessing. So turn them back in disgrace. Let them be like grass on the roof. Stop them before they get started unfruitful and unblessed 
Verse 8, nor do those who pass by say, they don't say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Nobody's going to come by and say, that is a great harvest you have in the dirt on your roof. Now they're going to say, you're not blessed. God's enemies are turned back, they are unfruitful, and they are unblessed. That is a bad way to live. Shamed, unfruitful, unblessed. You see, the issue is, is the same righteousness of God who said in Genesis 12, 3, to Abraham in making this covenant, I want to be your God and the God of your children after you, and I'll give you a land, and, and I tell you what, whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. The same God whose righteousness through grace delivers help to His children who trust in Him rather than themselves is the same righteousness that delivers justice, excuse me, judgment on His enemies. That's the other side of the covenant. You say, well, I don't want to talk about the other. I want to talk about who, who, might, who might understand grace and who might be loved by God and adopted by God. I want to talk about who's going to hell. I want to talk about who's going to be shamed, unfruitful, and unblessed. Well, you better talk about it because that's what the righteousness of God will do. Because God doesn't play. That's why He killed His own Son. That's why He took out all the penalty on Jesus. It's the other side of this covenant. I will curse those who curse you. Now, I realize that this kind of sharpness is not always appreciated in our world today. This world that seeks to make all gods equal. And, and all philosophical causes equally valid. And you know, in the Western world, in the United States... And in Europe, there are times when you, when you hear this and you hear the, the mocking of Christ and how stupid it is to be a Christian and all this other stuff. And you think, and this is just true, folks. In this culture, the church is receding. Now, it's not in Africa. It's not in South America. It's not in China. It's not in India. But, 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 but what our eyes see, no, the testimony of the Bible is this. It only looks sometimes like the world is stronger than the church at any given moment. Like 400 years in Egypt, like 70 years in Babylon, it looked like the Babylonian Empire was greater than Yahweh. It looked like Pharaoh was more powerful than God. It's kind of like, it's just not in reality that way. It's like that little side view mirror. Things are not the way they appear uh, behind you, meaning that big truck is like right on your tail and you don't even know it. Um, yeah, it looks like people are getting away with disrespecting God and persecuting the church. They are not. They are not. And you know, in our lives, when challenges come, 
all kinds of challenges and philosophical challenges and the difficulties and the struggles and the warfare. When challenges come, we reach out to God. We reach out to God, and I'm going to tell you something. That, folks, is when the plot thickens. That is when faith must kick in. That is when the story gets more dramatic and more interesting. Now, I went to lunch a while ago uh, this year, maybe about seven, six or seven months ago with somebody, and they're kind of one of these believers, defensive. Everything's, you know, got, you know, it's like, chill out, dude. You know, we're just at lunch here, okay? And, uh, but, you know, we're wringing our hands about the culture and the politics and the this and the administration and the church and all this stuff. And, and I looked him right in the face and I said, I'm going to tell you something. Everything you've said is true, but I wouldn't want to be born and live any other time but now. It's not near dramatic and interesting to live when, when, when the church is kind of on top. How about you? You want to believe with me? Like people 400 years in Egypt believed that God is greater no matter what you're going through, God is greater. No matter what's happening, no matter what comes against the church, God is greater and we can still pray defensively as well as praise the Lord. Let me tell you something. Some of the things that I long for, for the kingdom of God, may not even happen during my lifetime. I might be buried and in heaven. That does not change my commitment to it or my enthusiasm to it one iota. Because it's about God. It's about His kingdom, whether you're in Egypt or whether you are in America. God's truth and grace. I heard an illustration one time, and I'm going to do an impression of somebody in a moment. His truth and His grace is like a huge anvil that you can't move. Like nothing strong enough to to destroy the anvil. It's just like God is right there. He's like the oak tree in the middle of creation that nobody can take down. And everybody's got to deal with. And uh, I remember D. James Kennedy using this illustration... Uh, He was using it about the Word of God, but I would like to expand that to to being about God's kingdom and His purposes in this world. And though empires have just taken huge hammers and tried to to destroy Israel, and though culture and, and philosophies and Voltaire and all these people have tried to destroy the church, how many are the times we've been afflicted from our youth Let Israel say how many are the times, but they have not overcome us. D. James Kennedy put it this way, and I'll do my best D. James Kennedy illustration. He said, I had to stand up real straight. I slouch. He he didn't. Hammer away, ye hostile hands. Your hammers break God's anvil. Stands. That's Psalm 129. That is it. But let me just say this. Psalm 129, though defensive, is not angry. Is not angry. And it is not vengeful. 
Do you understand that personal vengeance, vengeance, all personal vengeance is a violation of biblical ethics laid down in the Ten Commandments and reiterated by Jesus Christ himself. Now, this isn't angry. And let me tell you what's worse than somebody who's defensive all the time. Somebody who's defensive all the time ain't angry. All the time. Yeah, I'm like, this is what, what following Jesus looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, not. No, this isn't, defense, this isn't defensive. This isn't angry. This is God-centered. It is heartfelt. This is about the honor of God, not you. This isn't about your hurt feelings. This is about the kingdom of God. We're praying for God's glory to be manifest. We're praying for the gospel to go forward. And you know, rather than being angry at some mystical those people or that particular person, you ought to be sad. You ought to be sad because it is actually sad for those who think they are in control rather than God. Because they're deluded. And they're like grass on a roof. It is sad to scorn Christ. It is sad to persecute God's church, to push God's church down. It is sad, and I'll tell you the reason it's sad. It is sad because that will stop one day. And it will all be judged. Jesus is the victor. We don't have to be mad all the time. We don't have to be angry all the time. Don't you understand? Jesus has already won. Jesus has already won on the cross. And Satan, the world, the flesh, and the devil, Satan is not like some equal opposition to Yahweh, to God. Satan's an angel. Like, it's like Satan versus Gabriel or something like that, you know? Satan is not an equal army against God. He's an insurgent. That's all it is. Just roadside grenades. It's, it's just smoke and mirrors and it's lies and it's intrigue and it's all the temptation. It's all the things to move us away from God's grace. It is not equal to God. Jesus has already won and His kingdom is coming through His church. Revelation eleven fifteen says the kingdom's of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. You see, the victory is already Jesus's. That should put a different spin on how we look at the threats that we face. But the victory is also ours. And the kingdom of God really is coming by showing and telling grace. It really is coming by God breaking us down and our own selfishness down and, and opening our, our own hearts to Him more and being able to share that same grace with others. Jesus said this, In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. But finally, 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 it's worth it. It's worth it. And I'll tell you why it's worth it. Because the people who need Christ for this spiritual warfare, for living in a fallen world for Jesus, 
The people who need Christ are worth it. You're worth it. Somebody shared the gospel with you. But we know this, that the grace of God, the love of God, the truth of God will only go forward in a fallen world through the suffering of God's people. You will be misunderstood. You will be pushed back. There will be suffering. But I'm going to tell you, Jesus has already won. And, and people are worth it. I love 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10, where Paul says this, We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. Sounds a lot like Psalm 129, doesn't it? We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. And listen to this. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, suffering, in order that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. What it's saying is, is we're going to go through a lot, and, and we're going to have the death of Jesus shown through us. We're going to suffer, but the reason is that the life of Jesus may be manifested through our lives. So let's praise him for who he has been to us. Let's pray for the kingdom to come. And let's pray against pressure and power from the kingdom of darkness in order that grace may prevail and the cross might win the field and the love and presence of God might come to many, even through us. Let's pray. Lord, would you cause us to see the world from the vantage point of the throne of heaven? Would you cause us to see that you are calling us to live in a fallen world and that there will be trouble, but you have overcome the world? Lord, would you cause us to see the reality of true spiritual warfare and to not only pray for things, but against things appropriately? Lord, and would you bless your church, both here and throughout the world? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.